Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today I am welcoming Dr. Robert Waldiger. He's the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. His TED Talk is one of the most popular of all time. There have been over 43 million views. So he's going to tell you about the Harvard Study of Adult Development, but it is the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted, which is so extraordinary. So it started in 1938. And the reason that I wanted to have Dr. Waldiger on is because so often we are focused on our kids and helping them achieve and accomplish this elusive happiness or career or perfect future. And we think about different things that might help contribute to that. So how cool to step back and look at this long study of human happiness on modeling positive relationships and helping kids and parents think about the good life. Also, Dr. Waldiger is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's the co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation, and he's a Zen master who teaches meditation in New England and around the world. This was such a cool conversation to tie in our earliest experiences and relationships all the way through our late life relationships. Have a listen. Let me know what you think. Please don't forget to write a review and go on to Apple Podcasts. And sign up if you haven't already for my premium subscription. It's $2.99 a month. It's the price of a cup of coffee. And it's completely different content created based on feedback that I get from you from DMs on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast and conversations with clients and groups and schools and community members. I'm super excited about it, and it's so wonderful to have different ways to reach everybody. Now I want to get to this conversation with Dr. Waldiger on the secret to raising kids who live a good life. So first, let me, let me tell you about the study. So it's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and it started in 1938, and it has repeatedly gone back to the same people over and over again, year after year, to ask them questions and take measurements about their lives, the big domains of their lives, mental health, physical health, work-life relationships. And it's gone over 85 years. The first generation has almost all passed away. A few are still alive in their late 90s and early 100s. And the children are all baby boomers. And the, at first, the studies were two separate studies that didn't know about each other. So one study, about a third of our original participants were Harvard College undergraduates, 19-year-old sophomores, who their deans thought were fine, upstanding specimens, right? And they, would, they wanted to study healthy development from adolescence to young adulthood. So, of course, if you want to study normal, healthy development, you study all white males from Harvard, males. right? It's <laughs> so politically incorrect. Like, what could be worse? No diversity, one gender, privileged, for sure, right? But then the other study was started by a Harvard Law School professor and his 
partner who was a social worker, and they were interested in why some children from really disadvantaged backgrounds managed to stay on good developmental paths. How did they not become juvenile delinquents? That was their question. And so they went to Boston's poorest neighborhoods and to the most troubled families. So families really troubled by domestic violence and alcoholism and lots of illness. And they found boys at that time, they were all like middle school age, who were doing well. And so that group, that's about two thirds of our original study group. My predecessor, George Valiant, combined the two studies. And so now we had this privileged sample and this underprivileged sample. When I came into the study, we brought in women. First, all the wives of our original participants, and then the kids. And the kids are more than 50% female. So we have this very now rich long-term sample of people, and we have we have data on their whole lives. You can go to our file room and take out someone's file, a family's file, and see, you know, you can start at 1938 and you can go up to the present and see all the questionnaires they returned. And you can see their Rorschach tests. You can see oh. brain scans. It's amazing. It's so incredible. It's so incredible. Just the idea that you then could look at the partners and the children and these whole relationships and how the relationship with the adults would manifest in experiences of the kids and brain health and their, you, you took physical health measurements, right? Oh, absolutely. What's the, what's the gist? <laughs> okay. The gist. So there are two, you know, hundreds of papers, almost well, maybe 10, 11 books. Okay. But it all boils down to kind of two big things. One is taking care of your health really, really matters. And so I'm telling you what your grandmother could have told you, right? But if you eat well, if you exercise regularly, if you avoid alcohol abuse or drug abuse, these things really matter that you stay healthier longer as you grow older and you live longer. And what we, we see these dramatic effects when we look at the people who don't take care of their health and compare them with the people who do. So that's the first thing, not a surprise. The right. second thing was a surprise to us. And that's what we wrote the book about. The, the second big finding was that the people who stayed healthiest and were the happiest and lived the longest were the people who had the best relationships with other people. And at first, we didn't even believe our own findings. We thought, eh, this probably isn't real. That, you know, we know the mind and the body are connected, but really, like, how could, how could the quality of your relationships make it less likely that you would get heart disease? Or good relationships make it less likely that you would get arthritis? How could that possibly be? And then other research groups began to find the same things. And, you know, as you know, from your background, we what we really want is for many different studies to point in the same direction so that we can have confidence that what we found wasn't just by chance, wasn't just a fluke of our, our little group we studied. So everybody began to find that relationships really impact our physical health and our brain health. We saw that People who are more connected to others experience cognitive decline later. They are less likely to develop dementia. And that the people who are lonely or in really difficult relationships are people who have more trouble with cognitive decline. And now a word for my sponsor. Well, it is the new year. And if you've been stewing about a health problem you have, or you're resorting to texting a group chat to get your friends' opinions about things that are ailing you, you probably need to take a hold of your health in 2023 and find quality medical advice from a doctor on ZocDoc. There are thousands of medical professionals on ZocDoc that are here to help you. They listen and they give you expert care that you need. And 
finding a doctor who is going to be able to take your insurance and see you right away is really hard. So don't play Dr. Roulette or scour the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor that you haven't met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who's patient-reviewed, fits their needs and their schedule, and takes their insurance. That's so important. It's 2023. Get all of your medical needs addressed and make sure that you don't wait and just chat with your friends about what's wrong. Check it out so that you can stay healthy. Go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free and then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com humans. ZocDoc.com slash humans. Your health really matters. So did you look at how, and by the way, not to minimize how extraordinary this is, I had the benefit of reading your work. (laughs) So I've already been blown away. And it is, to your point, this is not like a correlational study and we don't have, we haven't seen it in multiple places. So this is easy to buy. So now let's say we buy into this. How do we, I guess I have like 12, 12 main questions. Okay. First, I want to know how to, how do we operationalize that in our day-to-day life in the busy time period very specifically? Like, did you find anything in the busy time period of onset of parenting? Right. And sort of through the teenage years, because that's who's listening for the most part. And that time period what I'm hoping for is that even though we get swept away by so much, how can we step back and benefit from this research to make the kinds yes. of choices that will not only serve our health, but our children's health? That's so important. You know, one of the things we know is that parenting can be quite isolating, even though you may be surrounded, you know, you've got kids, you've got carpooling, you may see people that as you drop your kids off at school, whatever it might be, parenting can be quite isolating. And so one of the things our work points to is the idea that we we need to be deliberate and intentional about the effort in nurturing relationships, that otherwise we can fall into loneliness and isolation, even if we're surrounded by people. So you're asking this key question, which is what can people do? And I think that the first thing perhaps is to just sit down and take stock of what you have in your life, in your relationship life. Like what do you get from different relationships? And we get different things from different relationships. So some people we have fun with and some people our, our confidants, we can tell really personal, private things too. Some people tell us how to make great muffins when we have company coming, you know, and some people, you know, lend us their tools to fix something or come over and help us fix something in our house. So many different things we get from relationships. So the first thing would be to take stock. What do I have? And what would I like more of? And then think, well, how could I have that? How could I get that? And one possibility is to develop relationships you already have. Maybe you have someone who you have fun with, but you've never actually talked to about personal matters. Maybe you see what it's like. You dip a toe in that water and say, well, what if I trust them a little bit and see how they handle something personal in my life, right? So there are ways of taking a a relationship you already have and seeing if that relationship could broaden and, and offer more. There's also finding new relationships. But the most important thing I think is to be active. So I used to think, well, my good friends are always going to be my good friends. You know, my, my college friends, my elementary school friends, they're always going to be there. That's not true. That perfectly good relationships can wither away from neglect. So one of the things that your listeners can do right now 
just when they finish this podcast, is they can think, well, who, who am I missing? Who do I miss and would like to connect with? Take out your phone, send a text, write an email saying, I missed you and just wanted to say hi or wanted to connect. So you can do these moment to moment things or, you know, can my kid, can I come over when my kids have a play date with your kids and can we just have a cup of tea together? Or would you come over to my house or know that we, we are more intentional about arranging our own play dates, if you will, you asking someone to go for a walk, including your spouse, right? So, you know, if you think about it, when we're at that phase of life, when we have young kids. We're kind of more like a tag team than a right. than a couple often. You know, okay, you drive this one here and I'll drive that one there. And so I think it's being more intentional about saying, let's just, you know, once the kids are in bed, can we just sit down and have a cup of tea and talk about our day? Or if the kids are old enough to be doing their homework, let's go take a walk. And, you know, do something you don't normally do. You don't have to have any agenda. Just clear the space. No phones, no screens. Just clear the space to be together. And just let whatever topics come up, come up. And you will find that that relationship is enlivened because you're not just dividing up tasks around. Right, logistics. Yeah. In this world where we're trying to make everything so curated and perfect for our kids and show up for every game and every practice and do all of that at the expense of these other relationships. I often wonder, is it even the right message to be like, I'm throwing out everything else that matters and I'm going to just be at your game all the time, judging you, cheering for you, whatever, versus, you know what, I'm not going to make it, but I am going to be at dinner with dad, or I am going to have coffee with my college friend whom I also really want to see. And I know you can do a great game anyway, or I, I don't know, because yes. I know that. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad you raised this because it is really important. You know, when we think about how we raise our kids, the most important thing we do is model behavior, right? Exactly. Kids watch us a lot more closely than they listen to us, right? So, <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, right? So do you want to model a life that's martyrdom to parenting? Do you want to model for your child the idea that when they have kids, it has that's it, your life, the rest of your life is over? Is that what you want your kids to take away from what it's like for you to be a parent? Or do they want to see you having other interests in your life, other things in your life? Do they want to see you having fun, having alone time with your partner, right? No, you can't have mom and dad all the time. Mom and dad need time with each other. Yeah. It's really important, be, not just to nourish ourselves, which is super important, but also because otherwise we're modeling the wrong things for our kids. I'm so glad you said that because I think what happens is the way in to convince people to take care of themselves sometimes is to acknowledge that it's actually in the service of their parenting. Yeah. <laughs> because so many times this martyrdom, no matter what we say, it's nobody's going to be convinced. No matter how much research there is, no matter who the experts are, you st there's still a sense of like, yeah, but I'm going to really get this perfect, even if you say I can't. And this martyrdom is going to help my children feel so important that they'll never experience that feeling of not being seen or felt or connected to me. And really it's not, it, it feels like if anything, what you're saying can help us understand that that's not only not serving you, the adults, but in the process, imagine the perspective of your child and how much pressure that is for them to, to be the anchor for your meaning. Exactly. And 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 to not cultivate meaningful relationships outside of that because they didn't have that modeling. So right. I guess if you're not going to do it for your own health and flourishing, maybe the side door in is to do it for your children's flourishing and health. Yes. Also, 
you know, your kids need challenges, right? What we want, we don't want everything to be good for our kids all the time. They won't grow up into resilient, healthy adults with good coping skills, right? If they're never challenged, what we want is for them to be challenged in ways that they have the resources to deal with, right? So we don't want them to be overwhelmed by troubles, but we want them to have to delay gratification, right? So I can't have mom's attention right now because mom's talking to dad or mom is at her book group or mom is doing whatever, that something she loves, right? That that's really important because also it's unrealistic to believe that someone else is going to devote their whole life to you the way a helicopter parent. Mm -hmm. You just don't, you don't want to create that expectation. That isn't, that isn't the definition of love. Okay. So since you looked at attachment in adult relationships, I'm so excited and curious. And maybe we start with, because you just, you said that isn't love. Can you explain the secure attachment relationship in between the caregiver and child and what you've seen in your research when it comes to secure attachment relationships in adulthood? Yes. So attachment comes from actually animal research first, where they observed, it's like observing little ducklings who immediately imprint on their parents and waddle after them because the ducklings need their parents' care, right? And then, of course, humans, a human baby can't survive without a parent, at least one, who who really takes care of them. So the theory is that human beings, as infants, start developing ways to keep their caregivers around and to stay close to their caregivers, right? And secure attachment when you're an infant is feeling like, okay, I have confidence that my caregiver will be there when I need him or her and that I'm lovable. And so that's what we try to give to our kids. And many of us, most of us come out with some security of attachment. I'm, you know, the world will be there when I need help. I am lovable. And that seems to persist all through our lives. That if you think about what we look for in a partner or even in a friend, it's this sense of someone being there for me when I need them. So we actually asked our original study participants, we said, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? List all those people. Some of our people could list several people. Some of our folks couldn't list anyone, not a person on the planet. And some of them were married and they couldn't list anyone. So what we, what we think is that all of us need one, at least one secure relationship where we feel like, boy, whatever happens, this person will be there for me in a time of need. And hopefully I will be there for them. And so one of the things we measure when we look at adults is both a sense of being able to receive help from another person and the ability to give help to another person. And then in addition, what attachment theory says is that if we're securely attached, we can go off and explore the world because we know that that person will be there when we want to come back. And so you think of a toddler who toddles, you know, at a playground who toddles off and then needs to come back to grab onto your leg to kind of just feel secure again, and then can toddle off again because you're right there, that secure base. Well, we find that adults need that too. And that one of the things we notice in secure relationships in adults are that they feel able to take risks. So what you want is a relationship where you feel confident enough that this person is there for you, that you can go explore something new. You can take chances because if you fall down, there's going to be somebody there to help you get up again. And did you find a relationship between, I guess, well, I should ask, did you look at a relationship between 
the subjects and their sense of secure attachment or their attachment relationship in their parent-child relationship, and then their subsequent choices or ability to have a secure attachment adult relationship? We did. We looked at how warm their childhoods were as rated by them and their parents when they were teenagers. And then we looked at how securely they were attached to their partners in their 80s. And we found a connection that people with warmer childhoods had more secure attachment in their 80s. And it's, you know, it was not a gigantic correlation, but it was big enough. And it's very hard to find links that really, that you can demonstrate scientifically across 60 years, which is what we did. And, And what we find is that your childhood really does influence your ability to form good, warm, secure attachments in adulthood. That's not all that matters. And so what we also know is that people can have really good relationships later in life. People who didn't form secure attachments in childhood can have healing relationships in adulthood that allow them to form more secure models of attachment to people in their adult lives. So that was actually going to be my next question is, what are some concrete ways if you feel like, oh, I I don't feel so so comfortable in my adult relationships. I do s- tend to seek people out who don't make me feel the way I'm hearing it's healthy to feel. What are some things that they can do to shift that and to have those healing relationships? That's such a good question. I mean, sometimes psychotherapy really helps because one of the things that psychotherapy can do is help people realize, oh my gosh, I'm like choosing the wrong people. This happened to me when I was when I was in my 20s. I, I had never been in psychotherapy, never thought I would be. And then I went to therapy because I'd had several long relationships that didn't work out and I didn't know why. And then I realized from being in therapy and really looking at it for the first time that I was choosing the wrong people. And so I think what's possible is to say, am I really attracted to people who are not going to be there for me? And and that doesn't mean just romantic attraction. It can mean friendships, right? Friendships. And can I, and, and do I, do I feel like, do I discount the people who are loyal, who are there, you know? And so one of the things we can do is kind of take stock of this and, and try to experiment with what if I, what if I look for a different sort of person to be my friend? It's not easy, but it's really doable. And then what you find is once you, once you have a secure friendship and you know what that feels like, then it's, it's a real game changer in terms of your sense of what's possible in your relationships. So how, as you're thinking about watching your kids develop their friendships and peers and connections, and you're thinking, okay, relationships really are this foundational, this key to flourishing, lifelong flourishing. How much can you step in and, and support the relationships that seem to be the positive relationships and, and tweak maybe the tendency to lean toward what feels like unhealthy relationships. Are there, are there, are there things that you can say as your kids are opening up to you about things that didn't feel good or would you, without helicoptering and managing it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can help kids learn strategies for working with it. So first you can ask kids just to notice how do, how do you feel when you're with this friend? You know, and how do you feel when you're with that friend? And is there any way that you could make it better with this friend who you don't feel so good with? Or if that friend is a bully or if that friend, you know, makes you feel bad about yourself, you can, you can just help, help your child check in with him or herself, right? And say, oh, okay. I don't feel so good with this person. I want to be spend more time with the people who I feel good with. 
you know, and, and it's a way to, to give, to empower kids, right. To check in with themselves rather than someone else telling them, this is a good friend. That's not, you know, you can, and we can help them observe, well, what do you think of this person's behavior? I mean, we can certainly ask them to reflect and be curious, but I think helping them develop their own good judgment about which relationships are nourishing, that's the key, rather than our being the judges for them. Exactly. That's so wonderful to be curious, to wonder, and to help them learn to make the, to reflect and think about it versus our totally, I, I get the well-meaning tendency to want to say like, that's not a good friend. Don't talk to that person if they don't feel good inside. But it's so much more powerful in terms of giving lifelong tools to think about going in with curiosity. And there's some wear and tear in the process and it can be hard to watch. And it's, I'm struggling because I want so much to focus on adult development because I deeply believe that much of our, the thrill of becoming parents is this new opportunity for developmental growth because we are, we have the incentive to grow. So I want to take advantage of this moment in time of wanting to I guess, of, of motivating to become healthier, to cultivate meaning in our lives that help us flourish. And it's just interesting that it's at a time in life when we often say, I'll get to it in a decade yeah. or I'll get to it in 20 years. And you talk about that in this book. And I wonder if you could speak to parents who feel like they're pressing pause on getting to cultivating these relationships, whether it's within their romantic relationships or their friendships, or even we forget with our own children because we're so in the throes of trying to navigate making their childhood perfect, we forget about just the relationship. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you sell the idea of not waiting. You know, from... I'm a Zen practitioner. And, you know, when okay. you practice meditation, you realize that the only time we have is this moment, right? So here, here. if we're waiting, <laughs> I mean, I might be dead tomorrow. We, you know, and we don't like to think that way, but it is really the truth that none yeah. of us know how long we have. And so to say, well, I'm just going to put everything on hold is really missing what's possible in our lives because our lives are now moment to moment. And so, and yes, I, you know, we know that parenting is hugely demanding and takes so much time, but to say, this is all I'm going to have in my life for now is I think selling ourselves short. The other thing is that time goes really quickly. Childhood goes really quickly. And on the one hand that could make you say, well, I got to spend every moment with my kids. On the other hand, it might make you say, I need to be, make sure I have a life when my kids are launched, because otherwise you're not going to let your kids go. <laughs> you know, having, having a life is essential to being able to let your kids have their lives. Why? Yeah. The irony. There is some irony. Do you find this? Have you heard this? Like you're a Harvard professor. But my bet is that a lot of the kids that show up in your class have not been focused on relationships because they didn't have time. Right. They've been focused on achievement. Yes. So how do we come to terms with that? Achieving things we care about can be really satisfying and meaningful. So it's not that achievement is, is to be ignored or it's bad, but I think right. what what you find particularly at Harvard, I mean, Harvard selects for super achievers like me. And one of the things I had to do, and partly it's my research and partly it's having my kids is realize, boy, I could spend my whole time working and I will have missed my life. I will have missed my kids. I will have missed my relationships. And so 
it has really helped me to realize that that achievement is something to be kept in its place that within reason as long as it feels meaningful and nourishing and you put bread on the table of course that's important but that beyond that achievement isn't that gratifying i mean if i win one more award i might feel good for about 10 minutes and then i'm just on to the next thing whereas a friendship keeps on giving you know my friend mark who i wrote the book with mark has been my friend for 25 years we have a phone call every Friday at noon. And yes, we talk about research and we talk about writing, but we you know, we talk about our kids. We just talked about how Thanksgiving was and who was annoying and <laughs> who was fun to see. And you know, and so I think, you know, all of this is to say that if we if we let anything like if we let achievement take over, or we let parenting take over, right? And we don't have a variety of things that nourish us. We are selling ourselves short. And that that's really, I think, the bottom line, that there, there have to be multiple sources of meaning and multiple sources of energy in, the, in our world. Can't just be our kids. Can't just be our work. I do like what you said. I had, because I had a conversation with my daughter, Lee, because I don't make enough of a thing about her internal drive for achievement and grades. And she works so hard. And I don't comment, probably because I'm so desperate for her not to feel that her value is related to her achievements. Yeah. But in the process, she feels like I'm not appreciating who she is, which is a person who values her achievements. And it's this well, cycle that we get into. You know, I think what we can do is, is emphasize, is this satisfying for you? Are you enjoying this? Is, are you glad you got that A in math? And, and is it, was it, was it fun? Was it interesting? Are you proud of, you know, doing well in algebra or whatever it might be? And right. so that, we can move from the badge, you know, of like getting the A to what was the experience like? Because I think one of the things, you know, one of the things I've had to learn in my life, like I've had a couple of jobs that really I didn't like at all, but they were very prestigious jobs. And so I, I would be in, the, in a job and say, well, I'm supposed to like doing this because everybody says it's a great job. And I should feel so lucky to have it, and, you know, and, and so I think that what I've had to learn more and more is to check in on my experience of doing whatever I'm doing. So if your daughter can keep learning to check in on her, is this, do you like doing this? Because if you like doing this and you're proud of that, A, you go girl, right? <laughs> you know, that's great. Right. If you hate it, don't only do what you have to to get by, right? And turn toward the things you love because that's really the message we want to give. Like turn toward the things that you love when that's possible. And maybe it's also being flexible enough to say, and if the thing that you love is something that I think would be very unpleasant, that's my problem. I can support what you love. And that's probably exactly. what's happening there. As long as that's it's legal, so right? And doesn't harm anyone. <laughs> Right, right. No, that's so true. And I think that that's, it's easy to get into value judgments about what matters to each of us. But if uh, what, it, what matters to you is personal. I, I have some friends from India, and they say that in their families, you have four options. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a failure. Right. Oh God. And so that's the that's what you're talking about. It's like, you yeah, know, totally. we, we think we know what's gonna make someone else's life good, but it's their life. And boy, mm -hmm. the best thing you can do for your kids, I think we can do for our kids, is help them really pay attention to what lights them up. What's so good. interesting and useful to me is tying together, but I, you know, I also want to make sure that your work comes across in the adult development arena and not just like trying to keep tying it back to parenting. So, because everything doesn't have to tie back to that, 
It's just that it really does tie back to that for me because that's what gets me lit up is how humans like development over time and how we come to be who we are is epically interesting to me. But as I get older, I'm finding that I'm like, oh, I hit that point in life where I am curious about what else is there and what's happening. And I do spend a lot of time in meditation. I don't do Zen meditation, but I do spend a lot of time moving away from my, I used to cling very much to certainty and I didn't really see the benefits of uncertainty. Like I didn't see plane of possibility opening up. Like I'm finally, finally at a place where uncertainty doesn't equal terror because it equals curiosity and like possibility that that is brand new for me that must, I can't think that it doesn't have something to do with middle age. It seems developmentally appropriate. Yeah. You know, and I think that being able to embrace uncertainty can be so freeing. I mean, think about it. You, when you started a podcast, you didn't know what it was going to be like. You didn't know how it was going to go. So you had, you took a risk, right? And, yeah. and so if you, if you had to know everything in advance, you never would have been able to do this. And, you yeah, know, that's I, true. You know, and I think that, that for me, that's happened. Like, you know, I, I gave a Ted talk like seven years I'm, ago. I and, a wonderful Ted talk. But I was scared to death. So I thought my colleagues are going to think I have gone over to the dark side, right? My serious research colleagues, you know, because here I am, a Harvard professor, getting up and giving a TED Talk to a general audience about research. And I was like, oh, no, what's going to happen? But I just, you know, what what we do is we take these risks. And I think your, your idea about not knowing about uncertainty is what allows us to take risks if we can tolerate it. There's a there's a saying by a Zen master that I love. You've probably heard this. His name was Suzuki. And he used to talk about beginner's mind, about not knowing, about letting yourself not know, even the things things you think you're sure of. And he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. We can bring beginner's mind to parenting. You know, well, what if my child does try this thing that I don't think is a good idea, but nobody's going to get harmed? Why not? What if it turns out to be great? I don't know. And then being able to just allow that opens up this world of possibilities also for our kids to know that they can do something like that. And it's not terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Like it is for us, because I I will say that no matter how much I I pay lip service to it, there are still moments when I'm like, I do know better, and <laughs> no, yeah. we could Me save too. ourselves a lot of time here. <laughs> and it's hard to stop that voice from coming out. Yeah, but when I do, too. I'm I'm always I would say maybe not always, but most of the time I'm like, huh. Go figure. Mm. You know, one thing that helps me is to think back on the times when I was sure something was going to come out really badly or something Mm -hmm. was a terrible idea and it wasn't. And things happened that I couldn't have predicted and, and it turned out fine and maybe even turned out great. Right. And so I can remember back. I was fired from one of my first jobs as a psychiatrist. And I, Oh my gosh. Oh my God. He said, you know, my boss said, there's really no future for you at this hospital. Yeah. Wow. And so I went and found the job that led me into my research career. But I wouldn't have done that if he hadn't, he actually did it in a well-meaning way. He was trying to, he was trying to tell me the truth. There's really Mm -hmm. not a future for you here. But if he hadn't (laughs) kicked me out, I would never have gotten to this place where I'm doing what I'm doing now. Because maybe you would have been comfortable enough to just think I'll just stay here. Yeah. 
it's interesting because there is this world of wanting to let our kids feel the experience of failure as opening up the plane of possibilities, knowing what it's like to not have it all work out and to get up the next day and keep going. And yet it's very scary because the world is set up in this way right now in certain places, particularly in the United States, where if you fail at a certain time point, it feels like it's going to make or break whether you get into a particular college or whether you get into get a particular job. And so reminding ourselves of, you know, exactly what you, what happened with you, where it just wasn't the right place and having, getting out of that just ended up launching a completely wonderful and it seems very meaningful career trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, that I could not have predicted. Well, that really helps also with anxiety because part of the reason why I started to do meditation was because becoming a parent and being living in a world where, I forget who said this, but somebody describes this as this experience of, of parenting as your heart living outside of your body. I had many feelings about it, but it also terrified me because all of a sudden I was like, now I'm not just responsible for me, but I'm, and I'm so, you know, you don't realize how young you are until your kids are older and you're like, how was I allowed to do that at such a young age? Right, right. But so anyway, I started meditation because I needed something to help me not think that not knowing exactly and not having certainty, which I never had, but thought I had, wasn't the most awful thing in the world. And making sure that that's in the water in my household is a big focus for me. But it's a, it's hard because it comes from a place of living a lot of decades where I would have very much clung to certainty. And even now, there are certain things that you want to know for sure, and you can't. So I wonder if you have any any way to get closer to embracing uncertainty. You know, as you're talking now, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote by Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Power of Myth. Mm-hmm. He said, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. Oh, yes. Oh, God, that's so right. You know, and, and just to think of, of ourselves, but also these, these beings that we bring into the world, that we're all on different paths, that we're all finding our way every moment, right? And that, that so for any of us to say, we know what your path should be, is, is so confining and, and so harmful. It doesn't mean we can't give advice, and certainly we protect kids when we need to. So yes, you know, when my toddler wants to run out into the street, I don't let him. <laughs> That's not... Right. It's, you know, but but when my 20 year old wants to di- wants to stay out, you know, till 3 a.m. and turns to me and says, Dad, you wouldn't know where I was if I was on, on my college campus. I have to say, you're right. I wouldn't. I have to let this go. I have to let you find your own way here. <laughs> my last question for you is through all of your research, what have been the most defining features of close, connected, romantic relationships in these long relationships? So I'm thinking about marriages and partnerships. Yeah, of romantic relationships. So I would say the most defining features of the good ones are a kind of bedrock of affection and respect. That we even studied this, that, that we had couples who could argue a lot and pretty vocally, you know, and the, the, how much they argued didn't predict whether they were going to be a stable couple. It was whether when we watched them argue literally on videotape, whether we could see affection and respect, even when they were disagreeing. And so I think holding on to that sense of respect for each other is really key. And what about in those defining features of Well, okay. Can I just expand that one quickly? 
uh, that question because you you can imagine when you're in the throes of parenting particularly when you don't necessarily have the same background like you were parented by different hopefully you had different parents and so you had different experiences that you're bringing to the table and so then the question is how do you resolve them do you resolve them in ways that make you feel worse or like somebody won and somebody lost or do you resolve them in ways that make you feel like you're on the still on the same team right and particularly with parenting, you really want to be on the same team. And so even if you and your partner disagree, you want to find a way to go forward with the kids where you're a, a united front, basically. And that means sometimes you give in to your partner, sometimes your partner gives in to you, but that that you really want to find ways to resolve these differences. The other thing is that, as we know, that kids will sniff out disagreements and try to get in between and you know play the mommy daddy game and all that and so i think it's really about finding those ways to work out differences where everybody ends up feeling okay and in terms of the defining features of positive relationships with other people what what did you find over time that really held people together Definitely mutuality. So relationships that were one-sided, where one person gave most of the time and the other person took a lot and didn't give much, those uh -huh. were less satisfying, less stable. So mutuality is really important. I think the other thing is that feeling that you can be yourself, that you don't have to stifle parts of yourself that are important to you in a relationship. There are some people who give you the message that they don't want you to be certain ways. They don't want to see certain aspects of you. And if you can find people who really let you be yourself, those are the relationships that are freest and probably the most stable. I suppose the other thing to say about that is that, you know, Adult development means development, means change, right? We're each always changing. Yeah. So there, in any relationship where there are two people, each person is constantly changing. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.